0: Welcome to Business Lines State of the Economy podcast, where you'll find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers.
1: Hello, and welcome to the State of Economy podcast on global economy. I'm Lokeshwari. Our guest today is Madan Sabnavis, Chief Economist, Bank of Baroda, whose experience spans development banking, commercial banking, engineering. Commodity Exchange and Credit Ratings in a career spanning over 30 years. We will be discussing the very hotly debated topic, internationalization of rupee with him. Hello Mr. Subnavis. welcome to this uh, BL State of Economy podcast. Yeah, good evening. Yeah, to start with, for the benefit of our listeners, can you please explain what internationalizing the rupee means and also is this internationalization good for the Indian rupee?
0: When we're talking of internationalization of the rupee, it basically means that we would like the rupee to be a hard currency. When we say a hard currency, it means a currency which is accepted in all territories. So today, for example, if you're looking at uh, currencies like the dollar or pound or the euro, these are things which are accepted in any any country. So if I want to import something from, uh, say, uh, 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 say from anywhere in Europe. And I want to uh, pay for it. I could pay for it in euros. I could also pay for it in dollars. However, if I internationalize my currency, that is the rupee, I should be able to pay in rupees. So, the crux is actually the acceptability of the rupee in terms of the receiver of the currency. So, that is what internationalization of the currency is all about. So,
1: how, how is this beneficial for the rupee?
0: See, it is beneficial for India basically because uh, today what happens is that since India is more of an importer than exporter, we typically run trade deficits. So we do require a lot of foreign exchange to support our imports. So for example, if I'm exporting, say, 100 rupees, I'm importing maybe 130 rupees worth of goods. So I have to pay the equivalent in the form of foreign currency. So today we are saying that in case the rupee is internationalized, that meaning thereby that it is acceptable by the receiver, then I could pay a part of my 130 of imports, which I'm talking of, in the form of rupees. To that extent, there is savings of foreign exchange currency, and there's less pressure, which is put on the exchange rate because today when we're talking of how the rupee is determined it's a case of demand and supply for dollars in case there is greater demand for dollars the rupee tends to depreciate however if the demand is curbed on account of me making payments for uh, anything to do with the external sector in the form of rupees I'm able to save dollars in which case the currency is, it tends to be stable it could actually appreciate if we become a global currency but that of course is a long way off.
1: So you spoke about the hard currencies, and uh, the reserve currencies. So what are the features that these hard currencies have that makes all the countries comfortable with holding them in the reserves?
0: See, when we talk of hard currency, it's essentially something which has evolved over time. Because the fun goes back to the ancient days that is before the Great Depression. Everybody, everything, all currencies were denominated in terms of gold. But when the gold standard collapsed, we moved over into a pound standard. Subsequently, it went into an SDR. After that, we went into the dollar standard. So the dollar was the primary currency in which was uh, which was used for all for settling all global transactions by all countries, and there was acceptance for it. In course of time, as uh, other countries began to evolve in the sense of uh, countries becoming stronger in terms of the economies, and where they were able to uh, command a lot of respect from other countries. People started using the pound, the yen, as uh, currencies for settling transactions. Then at some point of time, there was a discussion on saying whether uh, the European countries could get together and create a, a single currency called the euro. So at that point of time, there was discussion saying that why is it that there should be hegemony of uh, dollar everywhere? We should be having some kind of competition. So there were certain uh, terms of engagement which were there when the euro currency was established in the sense that the economies had to be strong, they had to keep inflation down, they had to put certain controls on their fiscal deficit. So these were the major uh, considerations besides other political factors which created this entire concept of this euro zone. Then we had a single currency uh, which uh, did gain in stature and then it became a kind of an alternative to the dollar. So today if we look at the overall foreign currency reserves in the world, around 60% are being held in the form of dollars. 20% is held in the form of uh, euros, and I think around 5% each for the pound and yen. But the important thing here is that China has been trying its level best to make the yuan an international international currency, meaning thereby that all countries should also be willing to accept uh, uh, yuan. They want India to accept yuan, and India can probably buy goods from Dubai and pay for it in yuan. But that hasn't quite worked out, because uh, the fact is that when a currency is chosen, it's not just the size of the economy, which is important. the growth numbers, which is important, but it's the overall it's the credibility of the economy, which is also important. So I think that is where I think China is lacking. That's of course, it's a different issue. So we need to build up a credibility of saying that we are not just a large economy, we, we we have a strong currency in the sense that uh, there's lots of fiscal discipline, there's monetary discipline, we don't have uh, uh, these uh, phases of very high inflation, it's something which is a very stable economy, that's when you actually qualify in the economic sense for being an international currency.
1: So, you're saying the historical and legacy factors also play an important role in uh, determining this... uh, Yeah, absolutely.
0: Because the thing is that, why did did the dollar emerge? Because after the Second World War, it did appear that Britain was uh, affected a lot on account of the war. There were lots of damages, physical damages caused to the country. So, therefore, at that point of time, America, while it did take a decisive role in the world war, one should remember that no war was fought on the American territory. And it was the major country which actually brought about a so-called victory for the the allied uh, powers. So in this kind of a situation, there was acceptance of the dollar. Then we had uh, institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, which came up, and all of them were dealing actually in the dollars. We did have the SDR, which was the special drawing right based on membership. Quotas were given to different countries. But that was actually nothing else but a similar thing to the euro. Instead of uh, talking of euro currencies, I mean, countries from Europe forming the euro, we had different countries with different kinds of economic cloud, which formed the SDR, but that also quite did not take off. So it was a case of saying that at this point of time, that the dollar really took over, countries started accepting the dollar. It became the anchor currency. And that's how it has uh, had this legacy issue in the way in which it has evolved. So even today, everybody would feel more comfortable carrying dollars with them rather than any other currency. But uh, uh,
1: full capital account convertibility is also uh, required, I think... uh... For moving towards uh, uh, internationalization, isn't it? But are we really ready for that?
0: See, actually, if we look at India, I think uh, as far as foreigners are concerned, there's already full capital account convertibility. Okay, if you look at our current account, I think the LERMs it allows you to two two and a half lakh uh, dollars can be taken out by people for current for current transactions. So I think we are virtually open on the current capital account. Now, the only place where we are not really open on capital account is that we don't allow for flight of uh, domestic capital. That is, people like you and I should not be in a position where we take theoretically, say, $30 billion we want to take out and invest in other countries. That is something which I'm not allowed to do. But otherwise, if we're talking of foreign direct investment, we're talking of foreign portfolio investors, any foreigner who comes and puts money in India has full capital account convertibility when it comes to taking. Money out, so uh, to my mind, capital account convertibility definitely it improves the stature. But I don't think we are ever going to be prepared for such a situation because we have seen in the past also that when they when there were problems in the Indian economy, that was I think when we had this whole NPA issue which came up. It's something that we uh, at that point of time lots of Indian companies felt that look we want to go and invest overseas. Okay, we don't want to do our investments in India. Now, if everybody starts thinking that way, there will be a run on the, on, on, on the currency. So that's not something which a country like India can really effort to happen. So to my mind, capital account convertibility, while definitely having it, could probably improve the, the, the acceptance. But I think at the end of the day, I think acceptance is going to be driven by other sets of factors. A primary account, of, primary among them would be something like your credit rating Okay, because today, if you look at most of the currency, currencies, or the so-called hard currencies, all of them have a rating of A plus and above. Whereas if you look at India, we have been handicapped for whatever reasons, there have been lots of biases which are there. But the fact that I remain at a, at a barely investment grade level means other countries will be a bit hesitant to accept uh, the Indian rupee as an international currency. So I think that to my mind is the major stumbling block. It's not really capital account convertibility because foreigners already have it. So since we are talking of internationalization from the point of view of other countries accepting it, if they are bringing it in, taking it out, there is freedom which is being given there to them. So I think that's where the difference is.
1: So you have a background in credit rating also. So I always wondered how are these countries actually rated? Because we look at uh, US and this uh, many of these European countries, they have debt to GDP over 100% and all that. So uh, how come they have this uh, AA and all that and we have like the triple B or whatever?
0: Yeah, see, I think that's a very good question because uh, the point you made is perfectly relevant. But you know, the defense which is normally given by these uh, international credit rating agencies is that when you're an anchor currency, there is a kind of responsibility which you have to the rest of the world. For example, if we're talking of, if dollar has to be made available to everybody across the world, the the US has to keep running high deficits. So unless they run high deficits, only then will there be securities issued. Only then will we have a case of saying that the RBI is investing a large part of our forex reserves in US treasuries. So those treasuries should be available. So I think that is a privilege which a country has when you're an anchor currency or you're you're a hard currency. At the same time, it's another major responsibility. And today what we have seen, the reason why people are talking of internationalization of their currencies or having trade in their own domestic currencies, is that we have seen that by giving so much of power to any country, Presently, we're talking of the US. There are always economic implications because of the fact that the, 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 the American economy has become the pivot of it. Anything that the Federal Reserve does is something which we have to observe. Otherwise, I mean, there's no reason for us to be worried about whether the Federal Reserve is increasing the rates or lowering the rates. We need not be bothered in case there is quantitative easing or quantitative tightening. But because of this globalized effect and the fact that you're you're, you're an anchor currency, I think there are repercussions for the rest of the world. That's the kind of a responsibility which you have. We need the anchor currency country to be extremely responsible in the economic sense, as well as in the political sense. Because today, when we're talking of uh, America telling Russia that merely because you're fighting something in Ukraine, which is not acceptable, we are pushing you out of SWIFT, which means that all the dollars which you have invested with us, they have been impounded. That's a major political risk, because an anchor currency is supposed to be free of any risk. But today, we have found that the dollar has become the most risky uh, asset. Similarly, if you're looking, for example, at, okay, fortunately, if I take go back to the SVB bank, the Silicon Valley bank, the problem which took place was because of heavy investments in, in uh, government securities. And what happened when RBI, When the Federal Reserve increased rates, the value came down, they made losses, and the, and the bank collapsed. Fortunately, there were no repercussions because Indian banks were not into uh, government securities. But the thought really comes that when you're investing, if central banks have to do a mark-to-market on the basis of uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing out there, there is a risk which you're running. So I think these are all the issues which go along with it. So when you're talking in terms of internationalization of the currency, I think the critical part is acceptability. And for acceptability, you need to have credibility. Credit rating will become the de facto factor, saying that if you have a high credit rating, yes, you do qualify for being international currency. But then one needs to see as to how responsibly have these countries really uh, uh, performed, both in terms of the economy as well as politics before it finally gets accepted.
1: Okay, uh, off late, we've seen a lot of these deals that India is signing with our trading partners such as Start with Russia, then went on to UAE and of course, uh, Indonesia also to settle our uh, trades and local currency. So is this a way forward for uh, increasing the usage of uh, rupee globally?
0: Absolutely. It's a way forward because uh, if you're not using uh, hard currencies, but I'm able to use rupees for doing trade with any country, I think it's going to be beneficial for, for us definitely. But the important question is signing a deal is one thing, but for ultimately it is a private party which is selling goods to us and they would like to have hard currency because if i'm a petroleum company located in dubai and if i'm selling the petrol to india and i'm getting rupees in return what do i do with the rupees can i use the rupees to buy food say from uh, from china can i use the rupees to buy something from thailand the answer is probably no so signing agreements is one thing, which is probably the first step which is being taken, meaning ideologically countries are okay with it. But finally, in the practical sense, the user of the, of the currency will have to find use for it. So I think the way it could work is if there are groups of countries which get together and say that, look, let's accept our own currencies when we are dealing with trading among ourselves, then I think that is the right way to go through. It's going to be the baby steps. It's going to happen very slowly, because you'll have to find these kind of countries which have uh, uh, goods which they can trade among themselves. Because today, for example, if I'm looking at Russia in India, Russia hardly imports anything from India, but we are importing oil from them. So if they get a whole bunch of rupees, what are they going to do with it? And besides the policy here says, regulation says you have to invest it in government securities. So doesn't that mean that your money gets stuck in Indian government securities if you go ahead with such a transaction? So having a rupee trade, I mean, it's, it's a very good idea. Whoever has a deficit is going to benefit. But for it to work on a continuous basis, I think there needs to be agreements between like minded countries which come together. But for that, as I told you, there will always be countries who have a surplus, some will have a deficit. The deficit countries tend to benefit. The surplus countries will have to figure out what to do with all these currencies. Because just think of the situation where India has such ties with, say, Sri Lanka or Bangladesh. And they say that we'll give you, we'll give, we will buy things. They buy more goods from us than we buy from them. So suppose we get the Bangladesh taka or the, or the Sri Lankan rupee. What will we do with them? We can't do anything with it. The surpluses. So I think this is the same kind of an analogy which can be carried forward when we are trying to do it. So I think what we're doing is the right thing. A, you sign agreements. B, you see how people sit together, whether the countries can talk together, whether you can work out such kind of arrangements. But I think these kind of things are definitely required after this incident of Russia and uh, US and Ukraine. I think countries are thinking very seriously. And I'm quite sure we will make progress, but it's going to take time.
1: So are these agreements only for trade or you think they can be expanded to all cross-border uh, payment See, transactions, yeah, FPI, yeah. FPI, everything? Absolutely.
0: It can be done in all. But again, the whole question is that let's assume that I'm selling shares as an FPI and FPI comes and gives me uh, uh, dirhams of uh, of Dubai. What do I do with it? Can I use it to buy something from, uh, from some other East Asian country? The, the answer is probably no. So while agreements allow for all kinds of things, ultimately, I think for it to work successfully, the receiver will have to find C value in it. And presently, we have seen that notwithstanding how large China is and the kind of dominance it has in global trade and global investment flows, but there is no acceptability of yuan. Wherever acceptable, it's with similar kind kind of dictator kind of uh, countries where you're able to provide aid and you're giving the yuan which are being used to buy goods from you. So it's working out more in that way. But otherwise, if you see that, will any European country be willing to take uh, transact? Would be willing to transact in the yuan? The answer is probably no.
1: But uh, there are some who say that proportion of India's trade is actually pretty small, like even you also, so ultimately, we have to increase the amount of our international trade and exports to actually make the rupee more globally acceptable, isn't it?
0: No, absolutely. That's that. That's a fact, because if you look at the share of uh, of China in global trade and India in global trade, ours is, ours is very, very, very small. But the problem is that we have not really managed to increase our exports, despite all the benefits which are being given, all the push which is being given by the government. Because ultimately, what we have seen is that exports are driven by demand factor. We need to see, because where we have a competitive advantage, we're competing with countries like Bangladesh, Vietnam, China, Pakistan, so we have not been able to push those exports forward. Where we are quite successful it's refinery products where we're importing crude and then exporting it back to the Gulf countries. Yes, that's where we are able to add value. In Certain engineering goods we are able to do it and certain chemicals were able to do it. Electronics, what are we doing? We're importing a lot of the parts, assembling it out here and exporting it. So therefore, it looks like a good number. But we have have not been able to actually uh, get that kind of share in global trade where we can say that we are a major export player. We're still a, a small player.
1: So uh, de-dollarization is also something that's being talked about increasingly as of now. Uh, But uh, yeah, dollar is still supreme in uh, global uh, transactions. And also you just said yuan may not really be up there. So what what do you think is the alternative to dollar? Because everyone knows that uh, dollar is getting debased and uh, they want to move away. So what's the alternative now?
0: I I think we need to have more of these currencies. And I think the fact that there is conversation, there is discussion, there are measures which are being taken is a very good step. But to my mind, at least for the next decade or so, if not more than a decade, I think the dollar will continue to remain strong. Because the interesting statistics is that from the IMF data, if you look at what is the holding of uh, foreign exchange reserves in dollar, it hasn't actually changed after the Ukraine war. Which means that what I raised an issue in the beginning, saying that there is suspicion that... Uh, investing in dollars may not be the safest thing because they can be impounded at any point of time. But this has not actually stopped countries from saying, look, let's not put it in dollar, let's put it in euro. Their share remains intact, which means that there is a lot of uh, acceptance of the dollar. Maybe for the reason that one is not sure about the other currencies, because we should remember that when we had the euro crisis, which started, I think, after the Greek crisis, and then we had uh, Ireland and uh, Greece—I uh, mean, Italy, all these other countries also, which came in, in, in the fray. I think it was found that uh, having a currency, common currency for 15, 20 countries is actually not a feasible thing. Because it's very difficult to expect that all the countries are going to be compliant with the rules, which was basically the problem which you had. Where a number of these countries, Spain and I think Greece, they had actually deviated. They had uh, uh, shown different kind of numbers to the European Communities to say that they were compliant. And finally, you realize that they had high levels of debt, lots of extravagance, high inflation, high deficits, and therefore the, the it, it sort of these countries went down under. Of course, now there has been a revival package which came through, but there were definitely countries which are coming. Compliant and those which are not which are not compliant. Germany, Austria have been giving more than what they have been taking. So Euro hasn't quite worked out. So it's going to be very, very difficult to my mind. And again, if you look at countries like England, they have their own sets of problems. They've never managed to sort of take the entire world economy along. So they will also remain one of the players, but never the major player. I thought the euro is probably the only currency which could have uh, offered stiff competition. It does because if 20% of the reserves are being held in uh, Euro, it means that there is a large amount of acceptance but to t- but one would have thought that maybe they could take over some part of the share of the US but that quite ha- that hasn't happened in the last year. So I think there is still a uh, in- implicit faith in uh, holding on the dollar. So de-dollarization, it's a good idea, something which probably has to be pursued with but I think it's going to be a long time before it changes uh, dramatically.
1: Okay, uh, so final question. So what do you think the RBI and the government need to do to actually help towards this internationalization of the rupee?
0: No, I think the government and uh, has been doing the right thing in terms of going and talking to different countries, trying to make get people at least on board to say that they think the idea is all right. But uh, And the RBI ha- has been framing rules to allow for uh, rupee trade. Maybe th- there is some mechanism which has to be created to make sure that a person who, uh, who does rupee trade in, in India is able to get something out of the rupees, rather than asking them to invest in India, maybe if they can think of some other alternatives. Only then will that kind of thing work out. So I'm not quite sure if there's a clear answer to that. But for rupee trade to work, we definitely need to have something on the foreign exchange front, which the RBI needs to think seriously about if this has to start working. And uh, the government, is, of course, c- should continue talking to other countries also to make sure that uh, in uh, theory, they are uh, they find uh, dealing with the rupee, in the rupee acceptable but finally as i told you all decisions are taken by private players they are not taken by governments and uh, for that to happen i think what again the government and rbi is doing talking to the rating agencies continuously trying to convince them that uh, you need to uh, look at emerging markets in a different way don't use the same criteria as you use for uh, the developed countries because uh, emerging markets have to spend more because we have higher levels of poverty compared to, uh, to 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 the developed countries because if you look at india india is actually probably one of the best uh, performing economies for quite some years Similarly, if you look at uh, the credibility of India, even for foreign investors, they are investing large amounts of uh, money in India. So people who are actually putting the money on the table are willing to come to India. But the rating agencies have this mindset saying that we have a high fiscal deficit ratio. We don't; it's not acceptable. So I think that's 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 the major stumbling block for us. And I think the government is working hard to try and reduce the deficits. But what happens is that even if you keep three three and a half percent deficit. It keeps adding to your overall level of debt and your debt-to-GDP ratio keeps uh, going up. So I think that is something which has worked uh, uh, against us continuously. And uh, so it's all work in progress. And uh, convincing the rating agencies we have seen is not very easy because they have fixed Mindsets. In fact, interestingly, when we had a uh, some a, a new rating agency which had come up uh, in the last 10, 10, 10 years or so, called Arc Ratings, when they had done rating of India, they had actually given a rating to India which was not in the triple B category, but was, if I remember, right in the A minus category. So I think that was a more a fairer thing. But ultimately, it's the big three which dominate everything. So you need to get a rating from S and P, Moody's, and Fitch. And as long as they call you triple B minus, you are triple B minus.
1: Okay, so it's all a matter of uh, building a brand and improving a credibility and improving the perception of India in the in the eyes of the world. I think that's what you're well, saying. It's
0: more a case of changing the mindset also because you know the rating agencies are just not willing to change the methodologies. If you're just looking, because if you see on the forex uh, position, in India is very strong. Growth is very strong. Then they say your per capita income growth is low, but I have a large population. Then they talk of uh, fiscal deficit being uh, very high. I cannot help it because my deficits have to be high. We have to do welfare programs. America does not need to do it, though they do do it, but probably their scale is not the same as what we have. So there are certain uh, uh, government has to spend on infrastructure. So that's what we're doing. So ultimately, I think uh, the Indian economy, to my mind, not just because I belong to India, I'm, I'm saying this. I think we are definitely in the A-rated uh, category. We have never defaulted on debt. We don't own. In fact, the government of India doesn't have any foreigners holding our debt. So I have no uh, dollar liability. It's all in rupees. And if you look at our inflation record last ten years, it's been impeccable. It's been uh, in the region of five, six, sometimes three, four percent also. So I think all the parameters have been good, but. Unfortunately, there's been absolutely no revision from the point of view of the rating agencies. The maximum upgrade we get is with the outlook changes to uh, from negative to 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 neutral. We never seen the triple B minus moving even to triple B uh, or triple B plus.
1: Isn't this linked to the ability to repay the debt? Yeah. That, okay. That's not in question, isn't it for India?
0: It's not in question because my my debt is all in rupees. Yeah? Yeah. See, lots of countries, they, they have foreigners investing in their debt. Because even when we say FPIs are investing in uh, Indian government debt, which is permitted, it's all in rupee terms itself. So it's not in dollars. My debt is denom- denominated only in in rupees. And uh, logically, no country can default on its, on its own uh, commitments because you can always print currency. Worst case scenario. But I don't think India has ever reached that kind of a situation.
1: Thank you very much uh, Mr. Sabnavish, that was very insightful and I'm sure our listeners benefited from your insights. Thank you everyone for tuning in.